Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases and how we can learn and improve decision making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation for any of the funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hey everyone, it's Emily. Before we start this episode, I wanted to note that if you're a reader of the TVP blog, you might have actually heard this episode before. We released this interview with Michael Mopussin as a series of articles on the blog back in January of 2020, but since then we've started releasing the podcast on uh, more podcast platforms. And so we wanted to give more people the chance to listen to this episode as it's one of our favorites. Enjoy. My name's Andrew Evans and I'm here with Kevin Murphy. We both work on the global value team at Schroders, and on today's episode of the podcast, we're very pleased to have Michael Mobisat. Michael is an author and has held a number of senior positions in leading sell-side and buy-side financial firms. His books include The Success Equation, Think Twice, and More Than You Know, and along with his other writings, he explored topics such as probabilistic thinking, the role of skill and luck in different environments, and methods to improve decision-making. That should make him an ideal guest to discuss decision-making in uncertain environments with us today. He's also been teaching at Columbia Business School since 1993 and is affiliated with the Santa Fe Institute, which is a leading institution on multidisciplinary thinking. If that wasn't enough, to begin on with, he's married with five children and a keen sports fan. Welcome to the show. I hope you haven't missed anything off the list. No, that's that's more than I can even think of. Yes, no, thank you very much and great to be with you guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. Um, I mentioned in the intro that you've uh, been part of the uh, the famed Columbia Business School investing program for, for about 27 years now. And I guess over that time frame, you would have had quite a lot of changes in terms of theories and other things which have evolved. But we heard in a recent interview that you made the case of the part which has really changed the most is, is the part on decision making. So um, as we sit here today, what, what do you think are probably the three most important tools that you should have um, as an investor in your toolkit uh, for decision making. Yes, and you know, by the way, just to back up a bit for my course, I usually teach in four different modules, and, and what you've said is very accurate. The first is talking about markets and thinking about markets, and so decision making will come into that. And I think, of course, in the last let's call it thirty years, uh, probably the most important change we've seen there is just the substantial shift from active to passive investing and the implications. There's been a lot of interesting work in valuation, which is the second module we cover. And the third module we cover is on competitive strategy, also an area where we've learned a lot in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. But very much to your point, um, the area where I think I fortified the curriculum the most is on decision-making. And that was sort of a recognition fairly early on in the course that what made for a great investor had less to do with some of their technical capabilities, you know, how do they build spreadsheets or, or even think about things like strategy, and much more about their decision-making in particular. Um, 
And I'll just say the overarching problem in decision-making in general is uh, that people just don't consider uh, enough outcomes when they think about the future. And, you know, we, we commonly call this overconfidence, but uh, just to, to do a slight diversion, overconfidence typically has multiple components. Um, the first component would be something called overestimation, which means we think that we're better than we actually are doing something. So you ask somebody to do a particular task, they're, 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 they're absolutely overestimating their own capabilities. The second is called overplacement, which is relative to other people. And you've all heard these things, you know, 85% of people think they're above average drivers and so forth. But the third and, and last component of overconfidence, the one that's important for us, and that's called overprecision which is this concept that we're too sure that we know the truth. We're too sure that we know how the future is going to unfold. And as a consequence, we don't consider sufficient number of outcomes. So the question is, uh, what is the antidote to that? Sort of that that's, that's what you're asking. It's, it's really great. And the three things I would mention, um, the first is integrating base rates. So what exactly does that mean? When we uh, take on tasks or try to solve problems, the classic way to do that is to gather lots of information, combine it with your own experience and your own point of view, and then project into the future. Um, psychologists, I think led primarily by Danny Kahneman, um, have suggested that we should integrate this idea of base rates, which is looking at the past to try to anticipate the future. So a base rate would ask, "What? Uh, let me think about my problem as an instance of a larger reference class. And then ask a very simple question, what happened when other people were in this situation before? So in the world of business, I can do this you know, fairly straightforward. Let's say we could look at um, a company of a certain level of, of sales or turnover. Um, and then you'd say, uh, let's say, let's just pick a number, three billion. And just say, of all the companies of similar size, what, were, what was the distribution of one, three, five, and 10-year growth rates in sales or turnover? And then that allows you to understand, to some degree, if your estimation uh, in your own model is something that seems to make sense or not. Now, there's some technical ways to combine uh, your own views with these base rates, and I won't go into that in great detail, but just the integration of base rates has been demonstrated to really improve people's uh, quality of decisions. So that's, a, that's the first powerful one. Okay. The second idea is something called a pre-mortem. Um, it's starting to become more popular. It was um, The idea was conceived by a psychologist named Gary Klein, and the idea is to launch yourself into the future. So now let's say uh, it's now uh, a year from today. Uh, pretend that you made the particular decision you were going to make. So let's say we bought stock X or overweighted this particular sector, and that decision turned out very badly. Um, and, and, you know, very, very uh, disastrous. And then uh, now putting ourselves a, a year into the future, pretending we made this decision, each of us independently, and that's really crucial, each of us independently writes down why this decision worked out poorly. And uh, it turns out there are some psychological mechanisms that make the future to present more uh, mind-opening than present to future. But a premortem is a great mechanism to, again, unsurface um, these sort of ranges of outcomes that don't always come up in conversation. <clears throat> so that's the second technique. Okay. The third big one, and this is what t- requires some discipline but extraordinarily valuable, is just simply tracking your decision. So when you have you, – you make an investment, write down what you expect to happen, why you expect it to happen. And really the key thing here is to write down um, – aspects of the uh, investment in probabilistic terms. So do not use 
vague phrases like, it's a good chance that margins will be up next year, or we think it's likely they'll be acquired by their competitors. You actually use everything, all your, all your views should be uh, written down using probabilities. And one of the powers of tracking decisions in this way is it allows you to get feedback, honest feedback on, on your decision-making process. So again, I think this, this idea of decision-making um, is still under-taught, by the way, in schools, uh, including um, master's programs for business. And these three techniques, application of the base race, using premortems, and, and tracking your decisions are three readily doable, they're not super expensive to do, um, and very powerful techniques to allow people to improve the quality of their decisions. That's great. Thank you. Um, can I just follow up on, on base rates? So it's something which we've um, adopted in our team. We use those uh, pretty extensively. But, but there are definitely people out there who are suggesting at this point in time that mean reversion isn't happening in exactly the same way that we've seen in the past and that, if anything, base rates are less useful than they have been in the past. So what, what would you say to those people to defend the use of their base rates? So um, the key to understanding regression toward the mean is the key is understanding the persistence of a particular series. And so um, very much, I'm very sensitive to your point. So what we can do is literally go down the income statement, and we can do it to the balance sheet, but also start with the income statement, and let's just talk about some of them. So sales growth rates, we looked at gross profitability, we looked at operating leverage, operating margins, and then return on invested capital. And these are all things I'm sure you guys know a lot about. And what you find is, uh, for, for instance, uh, the, the degree of persistence tells you how much you should regress, right? So if there is complete persistence, in other words, what's going to happen next year is exactly the same as this year, there's very, very little regression toward the mean. And if there's a low persistence, you should regress um, aggressively. So what we know, for instance, let's pick revenues. Revenues have a correlation from year to year of about 0.3. So revenue growth rates should be um, should be regressed quite, quite meaningfully. Operating margins are, by contrast, very, very high persistence, um, about 0.8 over fairly short periods of time. So when, we, when people talk about regression toward the mean not happening, often what they're pointing out, they're pointing to is uh, margins operating margins. And that is a series that has never been a substantially mean reverting series. Um, that's empirically true going back to where we have data from the 1950s. Um, return on invested capital is another pattern that has uh, regression, um, but that not surprisingly varies by sector. Uh, the regression toward the mean is relatively modest in things like consumer staples and relatively rapid in other industries such as financials, or sectors, I should say, financials and uh, energy. So the, there is no one-size-fits-all in terms of applying right regression toward the mean. <clears throat> and the other thing people say to me on base rates, they'll say, well, you know, like, the rate of change is so rapid in the world and we have all this disruption and so forth. And my response is, uh, do you think we've had disruption over the last 75 years? Because if we have, there are those that disruptions captured in our data. So. Um, using the distribution as the end-all, be-all is not a good idea. I totally agree with that point. But um, what we know is the vast majority of future uh, corporate performance will fall within these distributions, what we've seen in the past. And so it's a very, very useful uh, signpost for us. Thanks, Michael. So uh, you, you talked about some of these techniques not being very expensive to operate, and we have spent a long time trying to 
integrate these into our process, and we think we've now managed to do so. But And Gary Klein's recent article where he talked about the pre-mortems and their implantation on Wall Street tells you that it may not actually be as easy as people say. And do you get a sense for how successful or how successfully people have, integ- have integrated these tools into their processes? So uh, base rates, and I'm very, you know, I, I'm not surprised you guys are doing it, and it's great that you're doing it. I think base rates still remain un, uh, neglected. I do think, by the way, base rates are not um, that always easy to access, and that's one area where it's tricky. And I'm sure you guys have spent uh, some considerable time and effort trying to do that, and maybe there's more you'd, you even want to do. Um, pre-mortems, I think the best evidence on this is that they have been used a fair bit, mostly in the, in the intelligence community, and I think that they've been found to be... Um, advantageous. Uh, that said, I've not seen a large-scale study of pre-mortems. Pre-mortems are, however, very easy to do, very cost-effective. I thought the recent article with Gary Klein and <clears throat> Paul Sonkin and Paul Johnson, to some degree, um, simplified that. I don't think anybody's ever studied how to do a pre-mortem would have made the mistakes that they articulate. So I think that that was mostly, if you stuck to the original script of what Klein de- described, uh, you wouldn't go off on that. Um, and then tracking decisions is, is obviously very simple to do, but requires a lot of discipline. And I think that's where typically people fall down is they just don't do that. And by the way, most organizations write research memos or reports internally that document their process, but they don't do, uh, I think, a sufficient job of extracting from that specific points that can be tracked and measured over time to allow for more quality feedback. So, so it's often embedded in these documents, but not explicit, and that's one area that, that could be done, I think, quite readily and uh, also without a lot of incremental expense. So, um, no, I think I think I, I, I hear these points on all these things. Uh, the other thing I'll just say about investing in general is my, this is my sense of having been around a lot of investors is uh, they're, they're busy people and they're hardworking people, and as a consequence, many of them are reticent to take time away from the day-to-day activity to learn how to uh, put in some of these frameworks to make better decisions. So in a sense, it's a little bit like the practice versus play dilemma. Um, And in my belief uh, is that taking some time away from the actual investing process to learn how to, to do things better has a much higher payoff than doing more of the same thing. But I think that's a very practical thing that you run into in many investment organizations. Can I just come back on decision journals again? So you, you described, and it's it's the same for us, that most places will have somewhere where you write research and it's put into some form of archive. That's certainly how, how we do it. But when, when you're thinking about the decision journal, what are the most important things that you need to note down so that you can go back in five years to see whether the decision was good or not? Yeah, it's really excellent. I mean, I think the key here is just to write down specifically. So you have a thesis that's going to be articulate a view that's different than what's reflected in the market, right? So you somehow believe something that's different than the market. Um, in, in the intelligence research, they often use a, frame, uh, a term called linchpin issues. So what are the key issues uh, that will uh, ultimately determine whether you're right or whether you're wrong? And those are the things you want to focus on. So most, most companies are stock ideas. It's two or three issues that are really the pivotal issues. And you want to articulate how your view is different and give probability assessments uh, of, of um, you being correct about that. And so that, that it doesn't have to be long. Now, I can just tell you that if, you, if I sat down with you and your team and went through those uh, reports on and, and, and past documentation with a highlighter, I could extract from your documents probably almost everything that I'm describing 
what I'm suggesting is that you should you should raise it to the surface right at the outset and be very explicit about it. And uh, another way to think about this is signposts. We call it signposts, which is to say, over time, um, if my thesis unfolds as I as I anticipate, we should see certain things happen. And these signposts not only again are measures of, of feedback, but also um, almost are, are, are serve as weighing stations. Uh, so how do I know that my thesis unfolding? Uh, uh, consistent with what I believe, or if it's not working out, um, these signposts give you a point to pause and discuss. And I think that, you know, the very typical thing, and especially prevalent in the value investing community, is you're often investing in things that are not super expensive. Um, bad news often comes with these companies, and, you know, the stocks go down, and, and so the analyst, of course, is not happy about it, but the analyst will say something like, well, you know, earnings are lower now, but the stock went down, so the valuation remains very attractive. We should stick with it, right? So rather than focusing more on the thesis, we get we get off on this um, it's always cheap thing, and uh, that, that gets into the whole problem of um, value traps. So, yeah, these, these are all really important questions to try to just be as clear as possible, surfacing the key issues, writing them down probabilistically, and then keeping track uh, that, that allows us then to, to – uh, to audit our thesis as time goes on. <laughs> um, as you were talking about um, signposts, I think maybe we could touch on on Bayesian updating. So I guess one of the most obvious ways that or theories out there is to update um, using Bayes' theorem for new information which comes out. So um, you have a theory, a new piece of information comes out, you can update the probabilities and whether you are accurate or not. But, the thing is, how easy is that to do in practice, firstly? And, and secondly, the, the problem is if you're a long-term investor, that would focus you on being a lot more um, integrated with the short-term noise. Um, so how do you marry up being a long-term investor and also doing Bayesian updating using short-term information? First of all, yeah, first of all, it's really hard. <laughs> Let's just be clear about that. You know, so so I think all of us. Uh, I always like to say the two to me the two biggest biases that tend to reveal themselves in the investment process is overconfidence, which we talked about a few moments ago. And again, this is this concept of over precision. And the second one is confirmation bias. And I always like to say, if you're in the investment business and you've not fallen for the confirmation bias, I don't believe you, right? Or you're not doing your job. I mean, we all do it. And so the confirmation bias, just to be more specific, is this idea that we seek to confirm information that affirms our view, and we dismiss, disavow, or discount information that is contrary to our point of view. And by the way, if there's something that comes in that's fairly neutral, um, we'll, we'll, um, we'll ascribe it to, to aligning with our views on something. So, so <clears throat> Bayesian updating is incredibly difficult because of confirmation bias. You almost can think about it as a brick wall that prevents new information from entering into your thought process. And by the way, there's good reason for this because usually when you come up with a point of view on something, you've worked hard at it. So it's not like you come at you come to these things lightly, and so you want to be right about it. Okay, so the question you you pose, and I think it's a really crucial one, is how do you meld the short term and the long term? Um, and 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 you know, especially if you're a long term value oriented investor. So we can just sort of go back with through what we just described, right? One is you're going to develop your thesis. Again, what, it, what view that you have that's different than the market. So you want to be able to articulate that very crisply. People often use the phrase variant perception. So you want to be able to say that in, you know, 45 seconds or 60 seconds, you could articulate it. Second is you want to develop uh, a series of short-term events that would be associated with probabilities that we're going to call our signposts. 
So, you know, revenue do, will do better than we expected. They will announce uh, divestiture of uh, Division X. Uh, we'll see return of capital. The dividend will do this, that, or the other thing, right? So, again, these are uh, – so just to state the obvious, the long term is an aggregate – Terms right, you don't you don't um, you know you need to do well in some short terms to get to a successful long term outcome. So these signposts are in a sense a way to measure all that. And again, the, this idea that we've pre-assigned these concepts that are key key to our thesis means that we actually have opportunities to stop and pause to see whether our thesis is unfolding as we anticipated. Um, the last thing I'll say about this sort of thesis thing and and these signposts that um, because everything is probabilistic. It, it gives the analyst and PM, the fund manager, some cover to be wrong. In other words, if you say there's an 80% chance that this particular outcome is going to occur that's pot favorable and a 20% chance that something adverse will happen, that means one in five times the bad thing's going to happen. And you can stand in front of your teammates and say, listen, uh, this, ha this happened and we need to move on. So, again, you hope that that's not going to happen more than 20% of the time, but 20% of the time, indeed, that's going to happen. And when you deal in a probabilistic world, <clears throat> that, um, that the bad things happen from time to time, even if you're doing your job perfectly correctly. So, um, and, and the last thing I'll just say on being a Bayesian is that, uh, you know, one of the key, and this even ties into the work by Phil Tetlock and Super Forecasting, one of the, the key traits of people who are good at this is this notion of being actively open-minded. That's a term coined by John, John Barron at, at Penn. Actively open-minded, which says that not only are you willing to entertain points of view that are different than yours, which itself is difficult to do, um, you actually seek counter-views, uh, seek views that are different than yours. And that is really, really cognitively challenging. So the, it takes some effort to do this, um, but that's really what you want to overcome is this confirmation bias is actually to seek information that disconfirms your point of view. So, yeah, being a Bayesian is, is really uh, crucial. And by the way, you don't need to be formal. I mean, there's Bayes' theorem, and, and there are formal ways to do updating. Um, I think a lot of the research literature shows that Simply being aware that you, sh you you should and can update your views, just moving in the right direction probabilistically in and of itself uh, tends to be uh, tends to set you apart from the pack in terms of quality. Okay, thank you. So we, I think we'll touch on probabilistic thinking in a second, but I'd just like to loop back to the decision making environment, if I can, that we started on. And, and you talked about a, a variety of tools that we can have in our armory to help make help us make better decisions. One thing we didn't talk about is the environment in which you you might you're situated to make those decisions themselves. So, if you had a blank sheet of paper, how would you set about making the ideal decision making environment? What would it look like? You know, by the way, I love this question, and I think that it gets glossed over a great deal. Um, so, let me just make a few uh, share a few thoughts. The first is, and obviously, we're going to be focusing on process because we're dealing with something probabilistic. There's some fascinating research. That suggests, and, and there's some error bands around this, but this suggests about 70% of the excess returns by investment organization uh, by by firms is a function of the organization, and 30% is a function of the individual or the fund manager. So the organization rough rough order of magnitude is twice as important as the actual individual within the organization. So this underscores how important your question is. The second point I want to make is um, that, that I don't know that there's a set answer for this. Um, there's a very famous American uh, architect named Louis Sullivan who uh, who's attributed with the phrase, uh, form follows function. So what I would always say is to step back and say as an investment organization, 
how do we think that we can generate excess returns? And you can imagine that there's a whole continuum of this, right? From on one hand, we might say Jim Simons at Renaissance Technology, right? Very high frequency trading, um, very quantitative, dealing, dealing with uh, un, unfathomable amounts of data to, you know, Warren Buffett, who very long-term oriented, never sells anything, makes relatively few decisions, but they're uh, on, of great order of magnitude. And so uh, you can imagine, and they've both been very, very successful. So so the way that the process that, that Jim Simons would uh, embrace and that of Warren Buffett would be very different. So my main thing is this concept I call congruence, which is aligning your process with what you believe to be your source of edge. And now you can deconstruct that a little bit further and say things like, what is common in all processes. Um, the first is you're going to have access to data. And notice I don't use information yet, then access to data. And from there, that data needs to be translated into information. And information, I mean very much in the sense of information theory. From there, we will select securities. So we'll figure out what stocks to buy or sell. And then finally, we'll think about portfolio construction. Um, and what we also know in, in any sort of um, you know, in terms of maximization, is there are two things that are important. One is finding edge, and the second is betting properly. Um, betting properly or portfolio construction often also gets short shrift in this whole process. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, the key is to step back and say, uh, A, what, how do we think we're going to be able to do this effectively? Align our processes uh, and then try to be to, to stay as close to your process as possible. <clears throat> And where there's often a lot of problem is that investment organizations say they do one thing and actually do something different uh, in reality. <clears throat> there's a wonderful visual from uh, Seth Klarman at Baupost a number of years ago where he said, you know, we are doing our job properly if, when you, if you were to lift the ceiling off our organization and peer in to see what all of our uh, investment team were doing, that they would be doing exactly what we said we would do, right? So, again, this sort of complete sense of congruence. The last thing I'll say is is a notion of stress and um, stress and short-termism. And what we know is different levels of stress in organizations will affect people's decision-making quality in different ways. Um, There's a beautiful literature on this, but the key takeaway, I think, for investment firms is if I increase the amount of stress, it tends to shorten people's time horizons, so highly stressed individuals and highly stressed organizations have very short time horizons. So that's why, um, now look, too little stress is bad too, but so, uh, an appropriate amount of stress is, is, is uh, very helpful. But too much stress tends to make even long-term oriented organizations focus too much on the short term. And we saw lots of evidence of that, for example, in the financial crisis, um, but that's something very much to bear in mind. So as, an, as leaders of organizations, you want to, again, have uh, performance orientation and people working hard and uh, obviously a culture of excellence. But um, stress focusing on short-term performance can lead to behaviors that are antithetical, ultimately, to long-term success. So to me, the great investment organizations are those that are able to maintain an even keel um, when things are going very well, they tend to, to, to uh, bring things down a little bit. When things are going poorly, they tend to bump people up a little bit to try to keep people on the, on the, on the straight and narrow course. That's brilliant. Thank you. Um, you. You said right up top that you know, people don't consider enough outcomes when they're thinking about um, decisions. And that really brings us on to the topic of probabilistic thinking. And I think the thing which we, we often talk about is that it seems strange that not everyone has adopted this as a mental model, and particularly people who are 
active in um, in uncertain environments. You, you thought it would have to be part and parcel of what they do. So well, why do you think it is that people haven't really adopted this uh, mental model? And, and how important do you think it is for people to think probabilistically? Yeah, well, I think certainly in our world, it's ex- extraordinarily, it's crucial. Um, and I agree with you that uh, it remains an underutilized mental model. I think the primary reason that it doesn't happen more is because of outcome bias. Uh, or um, Andy Duke in the, in the poker communities, they, they use a term called resulting. It's the same thing. So outcome bias is, uh, is a fascinating dimension. Um, by the way, there's an interesting mechanism behind this that in your left hemisphere of your brain, if you're a normal person, there's a module that uh, neuroscientists now call the interpreter. And the job of the interpreter is to generate causes for every effect that are, is observed. So it's a machine that uh, creates, spins narratives to explain the world around us. Um, by the way, the research was originally done on split-brain patients, so people whose uh, corpus callosum, the, hemisphere, the, the nerves between the two hemispheres, was severed. So they could really very specifically test this and see how it worked. Now, if you tell people the future has lots of skill and luck, in other words, the future is pulsating with possibility, everybody understands that. So it's not like people don't get that there are many possible outcomes that could unfold. (laughs) However, once an outcome presents itself, people trim all the other branches of possibility and create a narrative to explain what they've just seen. And in that process of narrative creation, two things happen that that really stunt, I think, probabilistic thinking. First is this idea called hindsight bias, which is you start to believe that you knew what was going to happen all along, right? And so that uh, that's um, massively problematic because um, you you fail to remember these possibilities, and the second ideas, something called creeping determinisms. You start to believe that what happened is the only thing that could have happened, right? So we're pretty good at looking to the future and recognizing possibilities, but we're very bad at understanding that, uh, basically counterfactual thinking. We're very bad at understanding that other things could have happened than actually did happen. So this is a really important discipline to, to even when you see a particular outcome, to recognize that that was only one of many potential outcomes and maybe wasn't even the most probabilistic outcome and to always have your mind open not only about the future but also about the past so we see this impacting the entire value chain to be honest michael so when people are appraising consultants who are appraising potential managers you'll see them say well process over outcome and that's quite difficult to do unless you've got a 10-year investment uh, track record and so they they go to the shorthand which is well, how, did, how have they performed over the last quarter, year, maybe three years at a push, and say, well, that is the evidence of that process. Or uh, when we're thinking about stocks or when our peers are thinking about stocks, they will say, well, that's worked well or that hasn't worked well, and therefore I made a good decision. But, of course, many things could have happened, and that one outcome is just simply the one thing that did end up happening. So I, I guess this is an, a, a useful time to, to go into the concept of risk. So... We talked about probabilistic thinking and a range of possible outcomes, but what does risk mean to you? So, you know, uh, you mentioned my affiliation with Columbia Business School and the value investing tradition, and so I'm not going to stray too far from that. I think that risk ultimately for a long-term investor is tied to the notion of permanent loss of capital. 
Um, and, you know, why is that important? And that leads to an inability to satisfy <clears throat> future liabilities, whether those are, you know, saving for retirement or education or what have you. Um, but there are a couple other points I would make, and maybe some things are less popular. Um, the first is that there is a distinction that I continue to to use. It's very simple, but that's from Frank Knight, the Knightian risk. And so this idea that <clears throat> risk itself is a case where we don't know what the outcomes are, but we do know what all the potential outcomes are. So the turn of a, a, a card or the roll of a die <clears throat> is something that's risky but not uncertain. Um, at the outset, you guys were talking about decision-making and uncertainty, which is a different world to some degree, where, again, we don't know what the outcome is. But we do know uh, we don't. But, but we also you don't know what the underlying distribution looks like, and that's a very different realm. Now, as you probably would imagine, and even we talked about base rates a few moments ago, most things that we're dealing with in the world of business are are really not super uncertain. I mean, they're somewhere in. They're not risky purely described, but they're also not uncertain. You know, in other words, a company's not going to go from you know sales growth rates are not going to. Company's not going to grow. You know, uh, a large company is not going to grow 5x in one year or something like that, right? So it's unlike these power law distributions we see in other domains. But again, that distinction, I think, is very helpful. Um, so when I think about risk, I do want to say <coughs> comment a bit on volatility. And, and I actually think this is where it, it may not be a popular point of view. But I think that when you think about risk, there's a huge temporal component which is when you talk about risk, you need to tell me about the time horizon you're seeking. So in the very short term, volatility, I think, is a very reasonable measure of risk. Um, and I can tell you this from, from very personally, right? So I have um, so kids in, in university, and I have to pay tuition. And so that money, the volatility of that money is very important to me. So it's in very safe security so that there's no issue with that, right? So volatility, I think, in, a very, in the short term is very useful. By the way, if you're an options trader and, uh, you know, you need to know volatility to understand things. So um, in the short term, I think volatility is actually very reasonable. In the long term, it has to be margin of safety. And margin of safety just basically says I'm buying something uh, for less than what it's worth and uh, I'm leaving a lot of uh, margin in there for me to be A, wrong, or for bad luck to, to occur, which it's going to do occur some period of time. Now, why that works, I think, is that in the long haul, if you're right, is that business performance ultimately dominates uh, determining the stock price. Right In the short term, we know price is more volatile than underlying business values. In the short term, that volatility um, you know, is it can be very noisy. Again, it can be relevant if you have to um, uh, have a, a, a looming liability. In the long haul, business performance dominates that stock price uh, viability, volatility. So that to me is how I think about risk. It depends a lot on your time component. Uh, long-term investors think permanent loss of capital and margin of safety. Short-term investors, I think it doesn't. It, there's there's always a role for for volatility. And by the way, within our life cycles, all of us are at one point long-term investors, and all of us at one point can be short-term investors just because we need the capital. So, I'm not super dogmatic about this, but I think that's a a, a reasonable way to think about that whole issue. <clears throat> And uh, we also ascribe to the view that the future is uncertain. But the uh, and we think about the permanent loss of capital. Of course, one of the issues that we have though is that when you try to appraise that and you try to put numbers on it, so you say, I think there is an X percent chance of losing Y over Z time period. Putting numbers on things suggests a, a greater degree of concreteness, if you like, about the future and can 
understate the uncertainty of it all by putting numbers to it as though you can then do some mathematical formulas with those numbers to optimize, which, of course, is uh, a fool's errand. So to what degree do you think you can quantify risk or do you think simply that it's uh, when you try to put a number to it, you're really just equating uncertainty? Well, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to your point. I think that's right. But I actually, I, I'm, I'm more optimistic, perhaps, and, and by the same token. So this is where I think base rates can be extraordinarily helpful in helping people think through this stuff. And so, again, if you're talking to me about the stock price performance uh, or business performance, either way, the base rates can be helpful, right? So and if you look at, you know, the United States, I'm going to use U.S. numbers, so those are the ones I'm most familiar with, But and I'm going to round a little bit, but basically, um, you know, the the geometric return on, on equity has been roughly 10 nominal. Standard deviation has been around 20. So, you know, what that tells you is in the next uh, 12 months, with a two-thirds probability, it's up 30, down 10, right? And with 95% probability, it's up 50, down 30, right? Those are pretty wide ranges of outcomes, and I don't think people think about things that way, and that's just using very, very simplistic math, right? Um, so, and any individual stock is obviously tends riskier than the index that it's in, and so you get you get very similar types of scenarios. I think most analysts don't project ranges of outcomes anywhere near that wide, candidly. Um, then you talk about well, gee, that those performance will be driven by the fundamentals again, sales growth rates, profits, and so forth. And again, we have lots of base rate data on that. So I actually think that those things can come in to inform you to some degree. And that's where this notion of margin of safety is so crucial, right? Because margin of safety is there to compensate for errors in your own calculations and for bad luck. And both of those things need to be accounted for. So so the idea is that even if I screw these up from time to time, and I'm going to, uh, we know that a priori, uh, I still can come out um, on balance uh, reasonably uh, uh, healthy. So... Um, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, this notion that risk is a number and, you know, or even volatility being the end-all, be-all uh, clearly is is uh, not right. But by the same token, we're not powerless to start to, to, to think about uh, historical data and other things to allow us to, to come up with, I think, reasonably intelligent ranges and, and, and incorporate the notion of margin of safety. That brings us on quite nicely to, to thinking about how we can learn from, from past decisions. So as part of our process, we will dig up our past decisions, a bit like the decision journal you, you spoke about before, and have a look to see whether decisions or what happened with the outcomes relative to what we thought um, at the time we wrote in that, that decision journal. Um, but you obviously touched on the topic there of distinguishing between skill and luck. Um, and if it is process over outcome, once you made a decision – how can you determine whether it was skill or whether it was luck? And, and therefore, when do you want to be learning from what was notionally a mistake um, if you don't know which side it comes down on? Yeah, this is another excellent question and, and you know, not, a, not an easy one to answer directly. Um, <clears throat> first thing I should mention is that if you envision a continuum on one side, one extreme would be activities that are all luck and no skills. So think about lotteries or something like that. And on the other extreme side, uh, all skill, no luck. Um, so you might think about running, running races or chess or something like that. Here, here's an important thing to bear in mind. In, on the all skill side, so chess or running races or something, outcomes are actually extremely indicative of skill. 
So in those cases, you don't need to worry about process at all. You just know that the fastest person is going to win the race or the best chess player is going to win the match or what have, what have you. It's only when you slide from the skill side to the luck side that process becomes increasingly important. And uh, because the, the noise to signal ratio is relatively high, we need to focus on process to understand um, you know, the, the, the likelihood of success. Um, I think the answer is very much embedded in your question, which was excellent. I think you guys are doing a good job of this already, which is to, to be very overt about laying out your thesis. And um, <clears throat> in your thesis, there are going to be certain uh, elements that will distinguish your view from that of the market. And you've tried to call those out very specifically. And then that allows you to set up this very famous, um, who, was, who was originally Jay Shoemaker, uh, Jay Russo and, and Paul Shoemaker, this little two by two matrix where you, uh, you know, you look at the process, uh, in, in, you know, get rows, could be process, good or bad process, and then outcomes. And look, if you're, if the stock is up, so it's a good outcome and your process was good, in other words, your thesis unfolded, then you give yourself credit and pat yourself on the back. By the way, if your process is good and the outcome is bad, in other words, one of the low probability events shows up and, you know, that happens, you're well calibrated, that happens the right percentage of the time, you just dust yourself dust yourself off and do it again tomorrow, right? Because even a hand playing a hand in poker or uh, decision-making within a sports match, there can be things that don't have good outcomes that are the right thing to do, and you'd want to do them over and over and over. Uh, I think we're the, the most challenging box in that matrix is by far is good outcome, bad process, right? So you were, you were right for the wrong reasons. And that should stand out if you've laid out your thesis and talked about this, Um and that's where you really try to, to draw lessons, right? Which is to say, like, we were, we got bailed out in effect. And then if it's a bad outcome, bad process, of course, that just sort of deserves the deserved outcomes. So, um, that, you know, that's one way to think about that. And it's just to continually audit this. And the, the challenge in, as you say, especially for long-term investor, investors is that the stock market or the, the P&L itself is a very bad short-term indicator of your process, right? Because it's much too noisy. Um, so we need to compensate by being very explicit in, in our theses for different securities and saying, here's what we expect to happen that's different than the market, what the market believes, and here are the probabilities we attach to those outcomes. And that allows you to create almost this sort of side, um, side track record um, that allows you to measure your own calibration and, and quality of your decisions. And then, uh, then you can be brutally honest in assessing your own, giving yourself short-term feedback Again, with some faith and belief and recognition that that short-term feedback will ultimately feed into long-term outcomes. So we've decided to do exactly that, Michael. So we have a, an archive for the team where we put all our research and we've tried to make it searchable by machine rather than just in long text format so that we can easily test our theses as, as we go back. And we started doing this in 2014. But even even knowing how to go about doing it, it's still very difficult when you, you turn up with a good outcome to, to admit that you made a mistake or when you have a bad outcome to say, actually, that was a mistake rather than just bad luck. Because for all the biases we've talked about, it's very difficult to appraise yourself um, uh, through these mechanisms. But uh, we, we do try. I think that's, I mean, first of all, it's fantastic. And there are a couple of things I would say is, for, you know, A, just starting the process of be, being aware of it. And like you said, you've been doing it for five plus years. That's great. And that's, you know, that these are the first steps and these are all things you can hone and refine. And the second thing is, 
that if you have a group of like-minded, open-minded colleagues, this is a great opportunity to just be create an open environment for, for the firm to learn. And so um, that's where you can have hopefully constructive, constructive discussions about various securities and the points of view to point to, to, to again, the, the goal is collective learning. So I think that's, first of all, it's great. Very few organizations do do that. Um, and but like you said, it's not it's not it's not simple. No, nothing like this is very simple. No, and, and it's not simple either because when you're speaking to people about it, they expect okay. So what's the big profound conclusion that you draw from all this? What is the what is the overriding mistake that you've made, or what is the big lesson that you take going forwards? And the answer is well, it's complex, and uh, and people don't want that. People want a clear cut black white answer. And so uh, and those are always more difficult because the data is not large enough to come to. When, for when we're looking at individual stocks to come to those sweeping conclusions. And so um, a time will help us and aid us in that. Uh, as I said, we've been doing it for five years, and the archive from 2014 has just over 100 um, observations in it. And uh, as we've gone through the years, it's got bigger and bigger. So we'll be able to learn more and more. But uh, hopefully that will be a significant edge for us as we go forwards. But, That's fantastic. So I'm, I'm interested in um, uh, one other part of your uh, career that we talked about up at the top, which is the, the Santa Fe Institute, because I think one of the most interesting things that we can learn is from best practice wherever it may lie. And it's rare for a problem to come up in economics or in finance that hasn't been thought about in other walks of life. Yet, obviously, we are somewhat arrogant and think we, ha we are these unique and special snowflakes that – um, uh, have de are dealing with these problems for the first time. But would you mind spending a couple of minutes to talking about the Santa Fe approach and then maybe giving us some color about how taking thinking from a number of different disciplines has improved your decision-making? Yeah, I mean, fantastic. And thanks for, for, for the listeners that are not completely familiar with SFI. Just a very brief um, sketch of the Institute. It's, it's in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, of course, not far from Los Alamos, um, where the atomic bomb was developed. And that's actually not by coincidence, um, there was a lot of eminent scientists that were, were involved with that uh, scientific community at Los Alamos. Um, I think the founding fathers had a view that much of academia had become very siloed, and so you know the economists would speak with the economists, and the biologists with the biologists, and the physicists with the physicists. But that many of the most vexing issues in the world were things that stood at intersections of various disciplines, and so they decided to start uh, what has been a non-degree conferring institute. Um, with uh, the unifying theme, so it's transdisciplinary, with the unifying theme being the study of complex systems. And complex systems we can define quite reasonably as uh, agents that interact with one another, and from that emerges a global system that has properties and characteristics distinct from the underlying agents. And these are evolving systems, right? And so obviously sort of the stock market, we'll come back to this in a moment, but the stock market is sort of the canonical example, right? Investors are the agents. We interact via uh, markets, and then what arises from that whole system called the stock market, and um, then we have properties and characteristics of the market that are interesting. So for me, I'll just say that I was first introduced to SFI back in the mid-1990s, so close to 25 years ago, and uh, the benefits to me have been really twofold. One is just a way of thinking. Uh, you mentioned a few moments ago the sort of systems, you know, complex and systems uh, that's that's sort of built into the way of thinking there. It's all systems. And uh, I have to say, too, that I've been very drawn by the people because there's massive self-selection. Uh, the people who tend to hang out at the Santa Fe Institute are generally very open-minded, um, open to lots of ideas. 
um, and have a lot of intellectual breadth, which makes it a super fun place to hang out. Now, to be more concrete, you know, what, what is applied to decision-making or, or the day job, um, I'll, I'll probably mention two or three concepts. Um, the first one is a very big one, right, which is conceptualizing markets as complex adaptive systems. So if, if you take one little step back, you know, it's sort of the classic ways to get to market efficiency our one is sort of mean variance efficiency, right? So we're rational agents. We understand our preferences. When information comes in, we all uh, interpret it in very similar ways, and uh, we get to the right price. Now, no one, I think no one believes that, but it's, it's nice on paper. Uh, the second framework is sort of the arbitrage argument, so that they're arbitrageurs who are the smart agents. They cruise markets. They close aberrant price gaps. Um, there's there's some, clearly a lot of truth to that, but we've also seen that in key issues in market junctures in markets, the, the arbitrage orders didn't show up. Um, the third way to get there is markets as complex adaptive systems. Again, interacting agents, um, and for the, the key for markets to be efficient in this sort of framework is that you need heterogeneity of the underlying agents. You need a properly functioning aggregation mechanism, so some way to bring the information together. By the way, in your brain, that would be the neurons speaking with one another through synaptic connections. Uh, ant colonies would be pheromone trails, okay, so markets would be uh, what we need for, for the stocks. And then the third is our incentives, right? Rewards for being right and penalties for being wrong. And in, in markets, it's money, but it doesn't have to be money. It could be uh, fitness and for a species, or it could be reputation or what have you. And uh, so this sets up the conditions under which markets are efficient and when markets are inefficient. So I think it's a very, very powerful way to think about markets and market efficiency in general. So that's the first big idea that I drew from there. The second idea, um, and one of the main reasons I was drawn in the first place, was work done by, very seminal work, I think, done by Brian Arthur <clears throat> on the concept of increasing returns. So earlier in our discussion, we talked a lot about regression toward the mean and the embedded notion of decreasing returns. So high returns on capital get competed away through competition. Um, again, as a first order, that's what one should, what should assume. But Brian was one of the... Uh, pioneers in demonstrating that we actually, in some cases, have this notion of increasing returns. Um, and, and by the way, we, show, we see that in certain technology markets, for instance, where in traditional markets, the typical market shares for the leaders are, you know, 40 percent, 30, 40, 50 percent. But in many technology markets, the leaders have market shares uh, 70, 80, 90 percent, which is quite extraordinary. And increasing returns often comes out of the notion of network effects, where the value of a good or service increases as more people use that good or service and uh, dominant networks. So this, I think, has been very powerful. This has played a huge role in what's happened in, in investing in general in the last 20 or 25 years. And I think uh, even as a value investor, you need to be very, uh, rec uh, you have to recognize these concepts and see uh, what the implications are. And then the third idea that I've always found fascinating is this idea of network theory. A lot of the original work on network theory was done uh, through Santa Fe and the Santa Fe Institute scientists. And this really gets to this idea of how information propagates across a network. And that has a lot to do with um, the successes or failures of popular products like books, movies, music, that type of thing. But also how ideas uh, move around in markets. Um, so network theory is also a third, third big idea. So again, the, the big idea is that we should be taking ideas from various disciplines. We used the term a few moments ago, mental models. So drawing mental models from various disciplines and uh, bring them to bear on trying to solve the problems that are in front of us. Um, 
by the way, although I'm not sure he's ever directly been involved with SFI, probably the other, uh, probably the greatest living uh, user of these kinds of concepts is Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's uh, vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren, Warren Buffett's partner for many years. And Munger's talked a lot about this idea of a lattice work of mental models. And uh, I think SFI, maybe more than any other organization I know of in the world, embodies many of those concepts. That Charlie Munger, thanks for that. Um, so Charlie Munger is known as a voracious reader. And is there a book that you would recommend that you think is underappreciated? One that not many people may know, but which has a significant impact on the way that you think or your life? Yeah, thank you for that question. I, I, I think if I had to select one, it would be uh, uh, E.O. Wilson's book, Consilience. And consilience is a, a, a very old word, came from the 1800s, but it basically means the unification of knowledge. And in that book, uh, Wilson makes a very sort of SFI type of uh, plea, which is that we, uh, our scientific world has made enormous advances in the last, call, 300 years through reductionism by breaking down uh, components and understanding how those components interact with one another. And, and so I just want to be clear that reductionism has been extraordinary, and many of the wondrous technologies we have around them are the benefit uh, or the product of, of reductionism. But uh, Wilson argues that the way forward is actually uh, in consilience, which is taking ideas from various disciplines and putting them together to try to understand the future. So it's very, it's very resonant with me. And uh, again, Wilson himself is a very eminent, eminent scientist, um, one of the leading researchers on ants and ant colonies and how they operate. And uh, so Consilience would be the one, the, the book that's a little bit off the beaten path, but I think really embodies many of the things I believe, uh, and I think that will be very, very important as we uh, try to forge a better future. Thanks very much for the recommendation. Um, sound, sounds great. But one thing, and this is the final question we do ask all our guests, is um, can you think of a particularly bad decision that either yourself or you, you've observed um, being made um, over time? Uh, yeah, how, how much time do we have left? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> I, I would say that, um, you know, when I reflect back on a, sort of the thing, I, the decision I probably, uh, I don't know if it was a bad decision, but didn't work out well, um, is that it, I, for a while, well, I started my career, I was a liberal arts major, and I started my career on Wall Street back in the mid-1980s. And I was in a training program, which in many ways was wonderful, in part because we had classroom instruction, which is, for me, it's certainly remediation. But also, we were able to rotate through different parts of, uh, parts of, a, of an investment firm. And uh, that allowed, I think, um, for a lot of self-reflection and understanding of, uh, you know, and anybody's individual skills and where you think you'd be most uh, productive and happy. But that job led, to be, uh, led me to be a financial advisor, so basically a stockbroker the late 1980s. This is post the 1987 crash and so forth. And uh, I was absolutely miserable doing that job. And I was a complete failure at that job uh, as well. And um, to me, so so it really was a very unpleasant period of time. I know I learned a lot in the process, but recognizing that I was in the wrong job for my own skills and my own interests. And so to me, that might be a decision, a mistake that I think I see from time to time um, especially when I think about my own kids and, and other, other young people, which is sometimes people go into careers for the wrong reason, uh, whether it's expectations of their family or expectations about sort of financial gains or what have you. And so the, 
decision is, uh, the mistake is to, to do things for the wrong reasons. Um, so career-wise, but it can be other things as well, is to always think about, am I doing this for the right reasons? And uh, and if you are, you know, and, and David, by the way, a great new book came out last year, uh, earlier this year, pardon me, is uh, David Epstein's book, Range. And I think he's got, I think he calls it skill matching, which is this idea of like thinking a lot about what you're good at and trying to match your skills with uh particular activity and uh, that's a very powerful thing to, to pursue and I think that people's one bad decision is people don't do that quick enough or thoughtfully enough that's great that's a, a fantastic answer thank you very much um, all that's left to do is to say thank you very much for for all your time it's been fantastic really educational so thank you Michael thank and you thank much. you thank you I really appreciate the, the high-level dialogue and um, hope, hope the listeners will find it fun 